Hello and welcome to High Story. My name is Matt and over here to my left is Tish. She is my cat and also our co-host. Just a couple of introductory notes here before we get started on why I'm doing this show and what you can expect and why I think you should listen, at least to this episode. Um, I like to learn things and I like to help people. I think the pursuit of knowledge is critical in personal growth and what personal growth means to you. And I think edu- it's very important to educate yourself, and you never know which piece of information will help you. And I plan on covering a wide variety of topics here. True crime, medical mysteries, scientific discoveries, ancient obscure religions, food history, maybe some cults. You never know. It's just kind of whatever I found interesting the last week. Probably going to be next week's show. Organized chaos could be a kind of a good way to think about it. But why I think you should listen, honestly, if you were intrigued enough by the cover art and the description, I urge you to at least give the next 20 to 30 minutes or so a chance. I'm not entirely sure how long this is going to be, but I'm going to do my best here. I'm brand new to this. This is my first time trying a podcast, and this is actually my sixth or seventh take on this recording because I keep getting nervous for some reason, even though I know I shouldn't be, and I'm trying my best, and... I'm going to try to be funny and factual and entertaining and on topic. And because of the nature of the show, I might go off topic a little bit, but I'm going to do my best and we're going to have a lot of fun. I want to have a lot of fun telling you about this and please just bear with me. I'm going to get through this and we're going to learn some stuff about sushi today. So let's get to know each other and let's go make a reservation for a party of 12 in a restaurant on a busy Friday night and then complain whenever we can't be set immediately. So... (laughs) By the way, if that made you have flashbacks of work, we can be friends. So I guess the first thing we need to talk about is, where does it come from? Now, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking. No, it is not from Japan. We're going to get to that later. It is actually thought to have originated somewhere in Southeast Asia along the Mekong River, right alongside Bayou culture, which was what would now be North Vietnam, Thailand, China, Laos. And this is almost 2,000 years ago. Not exactly written in stone exactly when it was invented, but we're going to say right around 250 AD, just for brevity's sake. And what is sushi? No, not fish. Technically, sushi is just the rice part. Technically, anything can be sushi if it's made with the correct sushi rice. And as you might imagine, that area of the world, even today, back then, pretty jungly. Giant towering trees of branches and birds and amphibians and reptiles and snakes and frogs and who knows what carnivores and I don't know what else might be over there. Ants, probably. Probably lots of ants. It's the jungle, right? I hate ants. So how would they do this? Well, it's not at all like what you're thinking today. Like, it's not not going to look like a California roll. So what they would do is they would take the fish, which at the time in the area usually was a golden carp or funa, And they would cover it in salt for a couple of months. And they would leave it stored in barrels. And after a couple of months, they would take the fish out, scrape off the salt, stuff it with rice, put it back in the barrels for a couple more months, or maybe even up to a year in some cases. And they would just leave it there until it was ready to eat. But why did they do this? Kind of because they had to. They didn't have refrigeration back then. This is, remember, almost 2,000 years ago. They don't have a fridge. If they didn't figure out this process, then 
they would end up losing a lot of food due to spoilage and things going bad, you know? They had to figure out something. Well, how'd they come to figure out this process? Well, during the rainy season, all the rivers and lakes would flood, and after they receded, there would just be tons and tons of fish left over on land that got stuck there and they couldn't find their way back out so there's just jungle floors full of fish flopping around to death and half alive and getting eaten by other wildlife and you're pretty hungry and you know you're gonna be hungry later so you cook up a couple now and then you take another handful back and you figure out that if you do this entire process not only is it safe to eat but you can have food at any time you can store for when times are real bad and Probably quite a bit of those back there, since that was pretty much the only way to preserve things, was to pickle it and store it in other things that were covered in mold. And it wasn't only just carp that they used. Sometimes they could use yellowtail or mackerel or ayu and yellowtail, my favorite one personally. Fucking love yellowtail. Um, ayu, by the way, supposedly tastes like watermelon, and I cannot wrap my head around a fish that tastes like fruit. Like, I can't do it. And who are these people? So, the various ethnic tribes of Southeast Asia and what would today be Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Burma, Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore. As I said earlier, there's a lot of different ethnic tribes in the area at that time, and I was not able to find the names of those, but I probably also wouldn't be able to pronounce them correctly. So I don't want to disrespect anybody, so we're just going to gloss over that. So just think it's thought to have originated in that area of those countries. Could there have been different recipes for this? Sometimes different families would have their own unique recipes, uh, how long they would ferment it, different types of fish, maybe they flavored it with some other things. Supposedly it tastes similar in smell and taste to blue cheese. And then they didn't even eat the rice. They, that's so crazy to me. Like They went through this whole trouble of figuring this process out, and then they throw away half of it. So it's not actually until about the 8th century that sushi actually made its way to Japan. Through the spread of Buddhism, overseas trading, merchants, it took a little bit of time for it to actually make its way onto the island. And there is, around this time, there is mention, written mention of sushi in something called the Yoro Code, which is, I think it's a tax document, but I tried looking this up and... It was so boring, and it made me so angry, and it took me so long because I couldn't figure it out, and I'd spent way too much time trying to figure out what the hell this thing was, and it just wasn't worth it. But then the very next thing that I searched for, well, I didn't search for it, but it came up in my during the course of research, is the Fukui Prefecture Dinosaur Museum. But later. We'll, we'll do that later. So I like dinosaurs. I know. Sounds fun. So sometime in this period, there's another evolution of the dish, and this one is called hanare. And really, the only difference is that it spends a little bit less time in the barrels, typically just a couple of months. My favorite one to research was oshizushi. Oshizushi is box sushi. It's pressed in a box and layered up, and they're really pretty. And if you look them up on Google Images and you look at some of these pictures of some of the oshizushi that some sushi chefs have made, they are gorgeous. I don't know what it is, but I guess maybe it's the the sharp edges on it, maybe. It, it, I don't know. It's something aesthetically pleasing about square sushi. I don't know. But why the new change? 
the needs of the time changed. They had to have meals faster because they had to do more work. It was a growing, you know, society advances slowly but surely, and as times change, they need things faster. But this got me thinking. It took, I don't know, four or five hundred years for the idea behind sushi to be created and then distributed and then transferred all the way over to the island that most people today associate it with. I don't know about you guys, but the daily grind is so dragging on and on and on and on, and it's never... (sighs) I feel like I just, I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. And it's just, those are just surface level things about it too, but you can examine each piece of that and go a little bit deeper with it. You know, and then once I get to work, I got a whole other list of things to do. And then once I get back home, I got a whole other list of home things to do. And it's just so boring. And during the research, I realized that, man, I don't know what life was like in medieval Japan. So we're going to find out what life was like or what life might have been like in medieval Japan. So when did this happen? A little bit further in the future this time, we're going up to sometime between 1185 and 1606. So a little bit further closer but not quite there yet and we're talking priests and aristocrats and farmers and peasants and artisans and merchants and tanners and butchers and actors and criminals and these were just a few of the social statuses that one could have at the time it was very much social status based and it was the impact of social status at the time was so important that daughters were often sold into marriage just so that their parents could have a better chance at improving their own social standing. So what was there to do for fun in medieval Japan? I had no idea before any of this, so you could go to sumo matches, you could practice falconry, go fishing, you could, hopefully not, but cockfighting was super popular back then. I'm glad that it's not anymore because that's super mean and you should not tape razor blades to rooster's feet. Especially for, well, any reason, don't. Don't tape razor blades to roosters' feet and make them fight each other. Please don't do that. You could go to the theater. You could play some Kamari, which was just football, or Tamari, which is handball. And bonus points, if you just thought of Tamari from Naruto whooping Tintin's ass in the Chunin exams, that was fun. Um, Shogi or Go were popular board games you could play. And once again, Shikamaru and Asuma Sensei just popped into my head. If they popped into yours, bonus points again. And um, a traveling caravan of cat people would come through about once a week or three times a month, depending on, you know, whatever the agreement with that city was. Uh, Obviously, they're not cat people. I'm just being stupid. But um, I am also picturing an RPG menu full of vases and furniture and chopsticks and pottery and tools and health potions and mana potions and revives and antidotes and better armor sets and weapons and magical accessories and hats and all kinds of things and things that make enemies appear more frequently or less frequently. You never know. RPG merchants are numerous and they always carry such unique inventories. You could also just play with a spinning top or a kite or go stand out in a field and watch the clouds go by. That was apparently a thing to do back then. I didn't know either. Yeah, I know. I Crazy, right? But what did they eat back then? Not everybody ate meat except for the samurai because samurai don't give a shit. Samurai don't give a fuck. Warriors need protein. So not everybody ate meat, except for samurai, but everybody ate rice, whether it was boiled, steamed, or cooked and dried. 
mixed into congee, which is super delicious. I actually make this today still. It's just rice porridge and mixed vegetables, and sometimes I'll throw in some chicken or some shrimp and whatever it might be around. Uh, some of the vegetables they ate were sweet potatoes, onions, spring onions, yams, soybeans, red beans. They also ate fish, seafood. They had lots of different types of fruit, like apples, oranges, strawberries, pomegranates, whatever the fuck a loquat and persimmons are. I've heard of persimmons, but I never actually had one. I always They look like tomatoes, but they're supposed to be sweet. I don't know. Ginger, wasabi, miso, soy sauce. They had a pretty wide variety of things they could choose to eat from, but what would they drink? Mostly sake and green tea. It seems to be the biggest two contenders. They're the only ones at least mentioned by name. I guess water? Probably water would be included on that list too. Oh, what about what they wore? So this is actually from whenever... You think of a kimono, this is around this time. They would wear, the women would wear kimonos, often made of woven silk. Sometimes they would just wear baggy trousers or skirt trousers or that long robe thing with a big train hanging off the end of it, kind of like I'm seeing Byakuya in Bleach. Um, that's called an uchki, by the way. Or they would just have a short jacket, which is a hayori. How did all of those different classes of people get educated? <laughs> no, get away from that. Education is typically reserved for upper-class people, so you can either join a monastery or be born rich, or you can fuck off. You're not getting educated. Oftentimes, at that time, you were born into whatever position you were in. (laughs) Oh, and I'm sorry for the aggression there. I just had to have a little bit of fun with that. So where did these people live? Present-day Tokyo, which at that time was called Edo, was one of the bigger popular... One of the bigger pop populated areas. There we go. That's better. We've got a little bit more to talk about on Edo in just a little bit here, so put a pin in that for just a second, and we're going to go back a little bit to... need to go back to miso for just a second. Miso is actually really interesting. It's not just that cloudy soup that you get at Chinese restaurants or Japanese restaurants that's so good. I love miso soup. I actually work at a sushi restaurant, and Whenever I have tables ask me, what's miso? They, I'll just bring you wonton soup. They don't know. And when I tell them what it is, and like what I'm about to tell you what it is, most of the time they'll just say, yeah, I'll give me wonton soup anyway. Miso, if you don't know, is made from soybeans, rice, yeast, salt, and mold. And what they would actually do is they would get these giant vats of rice, think like 5,000 pounds of rice, and they would use a very specific type of mold called Aspergillus oryzae, or koji. And they would use this mold to infect the rice. They would let the rice sit for a couple days until the mold had spread to every single last grain. By that time, a lot of that rice just gone. It, the mold ate it. It's gone. Like 500 pounds of this rice, gone. So then they mix in soybeans the yeast, and the salt, and they turn it up together, and they grind it up into a paste, and they let it sit for a little while, and at the very end of the time period, you are left with miso paste. Miso paste was designed to hit all the five major taste elements as well, sweet, savory, spicy, tangy, sour. And 
one of the most interesting tidbits, at least I think, in my opinion. Soy sauce is actually a direct byproduct of making miso. After they would put it in the vats, at the end of the cycle that it took to make the miso, they would collect the brown liquidy runoff that would come from the fermentation process, and that's where we get soy sauce from. We're almost back into talking about sushi again, and I promise it we're going to get back on there, but I, there's a purpose to all of this. Don't worry, I'm, I'm getting around to it. But we just got one more little quick stop to make, and that is vinegar. If you're like me, when I started recording this, I didn't know what the fuck vinegar was, and it was kind of a mystery to me. And now I've researched it, and I learned a lot about it, and I still don't know what it is. And I know I have two different types in my pantry that I very rarely use, and I should probably start using them more because it's kind of interesting about how this chemical actually works. So, what the fuck is vinegar? Essentially, yeast eats sugar and then poops alcohol. And then acetobacters eat alcohol and then poop vinegar. So, vinegar is a byproduct of bacteria oxidizing ethanol into acetic acid. So, this is why it can ruin moonshine and make wine go bad. People in Japan started to actually enjoy the taste of the sour rice that the fermentation process would leave on it. Around the 13th century, whenever the vinegar industry really started to take off, they would actually just put some rice in the, put some rice in the vinegar. They would actually put some vinegar into the rice to mimic the flavor of the sour fermented rice, and it, people really liked it. And today, that's kind of why they still use it to make traditional sushi, and it helps keep everything from falling apart, too. Alright, so now we're finally back into familiar territory, and definitely by at this point, what I think is probably the most recognizable form of sushi in people's heads. We need to talk about Edomaizushi. First, who created it? We can actually point to a specific person for this one. We need to look at a man named Hanaya Yohei. He was born in the Fukui Prefecture back in 1799, uh, but I don't think they had a very renowned dinosaur exhibit at that time, unfortunately. I've got to get over there and go see it one day. It sounds like so much fun. He liked to experiment in the kitchen as a child and try different things with different recipes and eventually moved to Edo in 1818. Is it Edo or Edo? I'm not 100% sure on that. If you know, let me know. Actually, I'll probably look it up right after this, so I'll, I'll by then I'll know, so don't worry about it. When did he do this? Sometime around 1824. A little bit hazy on the details there, but... That's generally the accepted consensus is right around 1824. So what he would do is, this is how he made what you call nigiri sushi, and also what I call nigiri sushi, because that's what it's called. So he would take a piece of netta, which is just whatever topping is going to go on that piece of rice, and he would put it on the rice that was mixed with vinegar, and he would hand squeeze it in his palm and form it together in this giant, Think like softball-sized piece of rice with a huge slab of fish on it, and that was the original concept of nigiri. Luckily, they've gotten quite a bit smaller and more bite-sized over the years because now it's they're meant to be eaten in one, maybe two bites. So luckily, we've progressed it to you know a lot more mouth-friendly, you know, better mouthfeel. And why did he do this? Workers needed a faster meal. There was constant citywide repair. Street workers rebuilding and moving stones and sweeping up debris. Just constant repairs done to the city because 
whatever might be, you know, different environmental factors, monsoons or earthquakes. And I'm sure there was a lot. I didn't directly look up those things. Mostly the problem in Edo at the time was fires. There were a shitload of fires in Edo. One source that I read said there was at least 49 fires. Big fires. It's, it's a big city made of wood. There's a lot of people. Mistakes are made. Jesus, no fucking wonder it's called the City of Fires. Just, this place must have never not been on fire. Like, every other year, it just goes up in flames. I don't get it. Why? Oh, those poor people back then. So after coming up with the idea of nigiri sushi, Yohei sold it on his back out of a wooden box that he carried around with him until finally he was able to open up a you know actual brick-and-mortar restaurant. Until finally he died in 1858. But that restaurant stayed open until 1932. Think about that. He died in 1858, and then that restaurant was open for another 74 years after he died. And that same restaurant has been closed for 90 years today. That is an insane amount of time to think of. And that's small in comparison to all the time it took to get to that point before then. Time is crazy, isn't it? But really, after that, there wasn't a whole lot of progress you know, we've essentially made it all the way back into familiar territory at this point because there's not a new development in it until it reaches California in the mid-1960s. Specifically in L.A., one of the many, many popular sushi restaurants at the time in L.A. was Tokyo Kaiken. It is also one of the many that happen to claim to be the inventors of the California roll. Chef Ichiro Mashita says he used to use king crab in place of toro or fatty tuna, and he would also make it inside out, because Americans are scared of seaweed, except for me. I like seaweed and regular weed, but you probably knew that. And then fast forward a little bit, up into the 1980s, popularity of sushi kind of sputtered a little bit for a couple of years, until sometime in the 1980s, Japan had a huge economic boom, and businessmen flooded to the U.S. from all over the place. They set up shop in California and other major port cities, just tried to figure it out and make it work. And then fast forward to today, where at pretty much every sushi place you go to, you can get a shaggy dog, California roll, spider roll, veggie roll, cucumber roll, salmon avocado roll, spicy shrimp roll, spicy Louisiana roll, unagi roll, hamachi roll, salmon roll. Salmon, by the way, is not technically orange. It is actually considered a whitefish. It is only orange because of the high crustacean diet, much like the reason that flamingos are pink. So we've come a long way with sushi over the last 2,000 years or so. Through trial and error, tweaking, tasting, refining, redefining, we've taken sushi, or the concept of sushi, from something that started as a necessity just because of a lack of available food, from heavy barrels and pressed boxes and sliced fishies to rolled maki. Sushi is now a staple in many Americans' diets. For many, it's an adventurous outing. For many others, it's a romantic interlude. And for many others, they say it's gross. Say it will turn you into an actual tuna. Make your breath stink. Make you fart more. Make make you grow hump. Look like Quasimodo. Make your feet go numb. Make you go deaf. No, not not really. That's just nonsense. Stony nonsense. Don't don't listen to that guy. He's crazy. Alright, so that'll about wrap us up with sushi today. We've gone from its original conception all the way to what you can get today, the various types of ways that have been prepared, what it was like to live in those times, and I had a lot of fun, and I hope you guys did too. Real quick before we go, since you were willing to sit through all of that, 
I guess now is a good time to introduce myself and kind of expand on the bigger message behind the show, or at least eventually where I want to be. So who am I? I'm just a regular dude. Right now I'm sitting in my room at my desk with my cat and a little doll on the desk next to the computer. I'm currently 15 months sober. I have to wake up and go to work tomorrow as a waiter. I drove Uber earlier today, and now that I'm done recording this, I am super bored. Honestly, that's kind of why I started doing the show. This is what I found myself doing most of the time anyway, just getting stoned, learning new information. I always have my bills covered and paid for and all that. I'm responsible, but when I get home at the end of the day, I find myself either not doing anything or just trying to learn something new, so... I wanted to do something a little more productive with my time, and maybe I can help someone better themselves too. I think the pursuit of knowledge is really important for changing your perspective. Shifting perspective is key to whatever your personal growth might be, I think anyway. And in order to shift your perspective, you have to change your circumstances. And in order to change your circumstances, you need to gain knowledge. What I hope to do here is to help you gain knowledge by giving you new information that you can learn and apply to translate into said knowledge. That being said, we're going to leave right there. And if you liked what you heard here today, leave me a review. Five stars equal to about uh, 20% tip, so keep that in mind somewhere, wherever it might be. Um, hit me up on social media, in Instagram, not Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'll leave show notes in the description and... Next week, we're going to stay in, right here in Japan because I found a really interesting case on a Japanese serial killer. So, until then, stay kind.